I didn't realize that when I became a parent, the biggest part of being a parent would be dealing with bad arguments that children make. Like, if you have a kid or you have a teenager or something, you know so much of what it is to be a parent is to deal with weaselly arguments, okay? And where you see this most played out, at least in my household, is the dinner table. Because when kids sit down to eat dinner, the only thing they're thinking is what is the fastest distance from point A, this food on my plate, to point B, which is dessert. Like, that's all the kids care about. Now, for me, I would say the fastest distance is you eat your food, and that's how you get to your dessert. But that's too simple. We're not going to do that. Instead, we're going to try weaselly arguments instead. So for a while, they went through the phase of just saying, I don't like it. Anything we put in front of them, they would say, I don't like it. But they learned very quickly that doesn't work because dad just says, well, I don't care if you don't like it. This likes you, so you have to eat it. So they tried that one, and it didn't work. So then they came up with this new strategy, which was to say, I'm full. But they were falling right into my plan when they said, I'm full. Because they would say, I'm full. I can't eat any more dinner. What's for dessert? And every good parent would say, if you're too full for dinner, you're too full for dessert. Yeah, see, we all know that game plan. And so now they're on the third phase of their attack. What they do is they take their plate and they take their fork and they spread their food all around really thin, trying to make it create an optical illusion that they've basically finished their food. And so I always say, do you want to see a magic trick? Watch, I'll take the spoon and scrape all this together. And look, I made all your food reappear. What an amazing thing. And I don't say this to embarrass my kids. I say this to say that we all start out as little weasels, okay? We all do, but we continue as weasels as well. We grow up and we just become more clever weasels. We become more sophisticated in our weaselology, okay? And so today as we read Romans chapter 3, Paul's going to be having this imaginary argument with this guy. And this guy, he's nothing more than being a weasel. He's just weaseling these arguments, trying to manipulate Paul into thinking that God isn't just or God isn't faithful in what he's doing. And so he has these three weaselly arguments. His first argument is, you know, what's the point of being a Jew if circumcision doesn't save me? His second weaselly argument is, well, if God made a covenant with Israel and then Israel rejected God, you know, that doesn't mean that God gets to suddenly punish Israel because God made a promise to be with them. And then his third weaselly argument, which is one that all of us have thought at some point or another, is if my sinning makes God look good because he gets to forgive me for sinning, then what is the problem with sinning because I'm doing God a favor, really. And so these are the three weaselly arguments Paul's going to combat today from this uh, imaginary person in Romans chapter 3. And really, Paul's going to boil down on defending God's faithfulness. Paul is going to show us three things today. He's going to show us that God is not unjust, but rather God is faithful to his people. God is faithful in his judgments and God is faithful even when he pours out his wrath. Let me say that again. God is not unjust, but rather God is faithful in everything he does. He's faithful to his people, to the Jews. He's faithful when he judges the Jews, and he's faithful when he pours out his wrath on the Jews. And for us today, we'll be able to apply this to our lives as well. So let's turn to Romans chapter 3, and let's look at verses 1 and 2 as we start. Romans chapter 3, 
verses 1 and 2. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. And so, if you don't remember Jacob's sermon last week, last week as Jacob was going through the end of Romans chapter 2, Paul was saying, you Jews who are circumcised, who think your circumcision is going to just guarantee you're saved, if you don't keep the law, your circumcision is uncircumcision. You're not a Jew because of your physical appearance. You're a Jew if you keep the law. Same way, if a Gentile who's not even a Jew keeps the law, believes in Jesus, does all these things, his circumcision, or his lack of circumcision, is counted as circumcision. And Paul's big point is saying that it's what matters about your heart, not your external appearance. And so then the first weaselly argument goes like this. Well, what advantage does the Jew have? Is there even any benefit to circumcision? Which you would assume Paul would say, no, there's not. But Paul answers the complete opposite. He says, yes, in every way, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. So the first response Paul gives is that the Jewish people have a greater advantage than the Gentiles. And why do they have a greater advantage? Not because by default they just get to be saved, but because they were entrusted with the words of God. Like if you imagine that salvation is a finish line, when you enter into the Jewish family, you are entering in much closer to the finish line than the Gentile. If you're a Jew and you're born with the word of God, you're born knowing the history of God, you're born knowing in God's name, you're born into this heritage, you are born so much closer to the finish line of salvation than the barbarian Gentile who doesn't know anything about the Old Testament, doesn't know anything about Abraham, doesn't know anything about this. He has so much more distance to cover in crossing that finish line. And so when the person says, well, what's the point of being a Jew? Is there any advantage? Paul says, there's tons of advantage to being a Jew. There's tons of advantage to being born into this nationality but just because you're born closer to the finish line doesn't mean that you still don't have to cross the finish line, right? You still have to be faithful to God. The distance is closer, but you still have to act on it. Like, the closest, I think, example we can come up with something like this would be like political dynasty families. You know, like in 2016, Jeb Bush wanted the Republican nominee, if I'm remembering my history correctly, and he lost it to Donald Trump. But Jeb Bush is from a dynasty family. He's from the Bush family. He has parents and brothers who have been presidents. He, he has access to things. And so if Jeb Bush were to run for president and then lose and say, well, what advantage did being a Bush give me? You would say, uh, a ton of advantage. You got access to things. You had hoops that you didn't have to jump through. You had proximity to people that 99.9% .9 of people would never have just by the fact that you were born into this family. Now let's take this illustration and make it even more absurd. Let's say Jeb Bush runs for president, but instead of showing up to debates, putting out ads, campaigning, all he does is he writes his name on the ballot and expects he's going to win because he was born into the Bush family right? That would be absurd. But that's what Paul is saying the Jews are doing. The Jews are literally thinking because their name's on the ballot that they are Jews, that by default they don't have to do anything. They've just been born into this and they're good to go. And so God is like saying, listen, 
you haven't put your trust in the Messiah, you're committing idolatry, you're living a pagan life, do you need me to go on? Like, yeah, there's great advantage to being a Jew, but you have to act on that advantage. Just because you were born closer to the finish line doesn't mean that you were born crossing the finish line, okay? And so we need to ask the question then, what does this mean for us today? I don't think there's anyone in here who is ethnic Israel. And so by virtue of that, and if someone is, let me know. That's really cool. But by virtue, there still is application for us today. And, and if I could really oversimplify the church for a second, I'm going to do that. I'm going to oversimplify the church into two categories. People who were born into the church, we'll call these people the Jews, and people who came to Christ as adults. We'll call them Gentiles, okay? So for some of us, we've been born into the church. We grew up in a church. We grew up in a Christian family. We've been in church longer than we can remember, okay? But then there are these people who didn't grow up in a Christian household. They didn't grow up in the church. They came to Christ as adults. And so those of us who grew up in the church are looking at these people who are the same age as us, who didn't grow up in the church. Both of us are saved. And here's the kicker. We have really boring testimonies. Our testimonies are almost embarrassing to share when we're in a small group or something. Like, yeah, when I was six years old, I was really addicted to drugs, you know, and God really saved me from that. Life. You know, like, like we have boring testimonies. And these people who came in to, to life, if the Gentiles will call them, they have really exciting testimonies. And so for those of us who've been born into the church, we might feel like the Jews saying, what advantage is there? What advantage is there being born into the church? Because God saves everyone, so is there really any point in being born into the church or not? And so I want to just remind you, a lot of us in this room may feel like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. You know, we all know the story of the younger brother in the prodigal son. He went out, he got his inheritance, he spent his money on loose living, then came back, the father forgave him and brought him back in. But then there's this older brother who we don't talk about it a ton, but I think a lot of us can relate to more honestly. The older brother who says, year after year I served you, Dad, and you never slaughtered the fattened calf for me. You never did anything for me, and yet I've faithfully been here the entire time, essentially saying, what advantage is there for me to be in this church the entire time, whereas my brother went off and did whatever he wanted now he came back and we're both heirs to this farm and everything and so i want to share with you the same thing paul says he says there is great advantage you were not disadvantaged if you were born into the church your boring testimony is not actually a boring testimony i want you to understand that your boring testimony that you think is is not exciting to share at small groups, is not a boring testimony. If anything, it is a testimony that is envied because it is a testimony where God protected you from lots of pain and hurt that the prodigal sons in the room are going to have to deal with. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm one of these prodigal sons, you know, this sermon isn't about me, I want you to know at any moment you will be in the church long enough and then someone new will come in, and then you will be the Jew to them, and they will be the prodigal son. So all of us will feel like this at some point, okay? But I want you to know, being born into the church or being in a Christian family right now, being in this church right now, regardless of your past, being here right now, you have a greater advantage. You need to understand that. But this sword cuts both ways. If you are in this church, if you were born into a Christian family, or you're in this church today, 
I want you to understand, just by being here, just by being from a Christian family, just by being from a Christian country, just by being in a Christian area, doesn't make you a Christian. That's the drum that we beat so much in the church, but the reason we beat that drum so much is because for all of human history, this has been a problem. For the Jews in the time of Rome, this was a problem. They thought they were saved by default. For us today in the red states, this is a problem for us because we think we're saved because we're Republicans. Like, this is a problem. It doesn't matter if you serve at VBS, if you grew up in the church, if you went to Awana and got every single badge. The only thing that matters is not how close you were to this finish line, but whether you've put your trust in Jesus and crossed that finish line. And so regardless of who you are in this room, I want you to know all that matters ultimately is have you put your trust in Jesus. But if you are one of the Christians who've grown up in this church and you think to yourself, what advantage did growing up give me because God saves everyone and anyone, so all I did was have a life that was really boring, I want you to know you were advantaged in every way because you grew up closer to the word of God. Your boring testimony is not a deficit in your life. Rather, it is something to praise God about, that he protected you from the pain and heartache that goes with an exciting testimony. And I think anyone who's in here who has what we would call an exciting testimony would say that they would have preferred to get saved earlier and save themselves the pain that came from those choices. I think we would all agree with that, church. And so we've seen our first point today that God is faithful to his people that it is not that the Jews have been disadvantaged, but rather they have been completely advantaged by being born as Jews. In the same way God is faithful to us, we are not disadvantaged by being saved. Rather, we are greatly advantaged. The fact that every single one of us can hold a Bible in our hands regardless of how long we've been Christians, we are greatly advantaged. Let us take advantage of this advantage that God has and cross the finish line and put our trust in Jesus. The second point I want to make today is that God is faithful in his judgments, okay? Now, for the Jews in verses 3 through 5, their argument, their second weaselly argument is saying that God made a covenant that he would be our God and we would be his people, but now he's punishing us for rejecting Jesus. Well, that's not fair. God said he'd be our God. Why is he punishing us? That's not just for him to punish me because he said I would be his people, okay? And so let's look at this argument. What then, if some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. Once again, this is, this is a hard text because Paul's having an argument with an imaginary person, okay? And these concepts are a little strange, but he says, if some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? And so if the Jewish nation rejected Jesus, does the Jewish nation rejecting Jesus mean that God is no longer going to be faithful to the Jews? And Paul responds, and he says, absolutely not. And he says, let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. And so what he's saying is, even if every single Jew rejected Jesus, God would still be faithful to the Jews. Even if every single person was a liar, God would still be faithful to them. And before we sit there and say, well, that man, what a get-out-of-jail-free card. God is just going to be faithful to the Jews regardless of what they do. 
they don't understand what faithfulness means. And Paul's getting ready to show them that at the end of verse 4. He quotes from Psalm 51, where David is saying that because God punished him, God was faithful to David by punishing him for his sin. He says that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. See, what we have forgotten, what the Jewish people have forgotten, and what we have forgotten is that part of God's faithfulness to us is his judgment of sin. God is not judging us because he is unfaithful. God is judging us because he is completely faithful to his character, okay? So the Jewish people had this great misunderstanding, really two misunderstandings. They thought that God's faithfulness to them meant there would be no consequences to their actions. The same way that if my kids know that I love them, they are then surprised when I punish them. No, no, no. It is because I love them that I punish them. In the same way, Jewish people, it is because you are sinning and committing idolatry that God is completely faithful to judge them. And then the second thing that they forgot about, they've forgotten about their history. If you look through the Old Testament, especially, well, really the Torah, the prophets, like listen to Deuteronomy eleven twenty six through 28. Look, today I set before you a blessing and a curse. There will be a blessing if you obey the commands of the Lord your God I'm giving you today, and a curse if you do not obey the commands of the Lord your God and turn aside from the path that I command you today by following other gods that you have not known. Over and over and over in the Old Testament, God says, I'm setting before you blessings and curses, life and death. If you will follow me, I will be faithful and I will bless you. If you turn away from me, I will be faithful and I will curse you. I will judge you. Okay? And so this argument then, the person is saying, it's not fair. God's not being faithful because he's punishing me. And what Paul is saying is, it is only because God is fair that he is punishing you. Like, okay, so I have a, the closest thing I have to a covenant outside of my marriage is my house that I don't actually own. U.S. Bank owns my house. And there is a contract that for $130,000, I will pay them, and they will give me my house. And then after I pay them something like $400,000, I still don't know how that's not illegal, I will then get that house. So I have this covenant with U.S. Bank where I pay them, and at the end of it, this is my house, okay? Now, if I were to stop paying U.S. Bank after six months or whatever, I come home, all my furniture's on the floor, my locks are changed. If I were to go to U.S. Bank and say, hey, you're not being faithful. We signed a contract. You're not being faithful by kicking me out. U.S. Bank would respond and say, no, 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 no. It is only because we are being faithful to the contract that you signed that we are evicting you from this home because this contract had terms and conditions and stipulations. And so for the Jewish people, you need to understand God is judging you because he is faithful. God triumphs when he judges, like it says in Psalm 51. Because God is faithful, he must judge. And I think we as Christians today are a lot more like these Jewish people than we would like to admit. Um, we struggle that believing that faithful could mean that God could punish us or discipline us. We struggle to believe that faithfulness doesn't mean that God will just always be nice to us, okay? But I want you to understand, like, a lot of us know this verse, Hebrews 12, 6. 
God disciplines those he loves, okay? As we talk about faithfulness and we talk about God's faithfulness, Christian today, you need to understand that God could be very faithful. God will be very faithful, in fact, disciplining you when you sin, okay? And you know the second thing that God's faithfulness could mean? God's faithfulness could mean denying you. If you reject Christ, God is faithful to reject you. This is what it says in Matthew 10, 33. Whoever denies me before others, I will deny before my Father in heaven. That is Christ being faithful to his word. Or 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. This saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, when you look at verse 13, and it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, you might want to read that through the best possible meaning for you, that even if we reject God, God is just so faithful and loving that he's going to keep being faithful to us. That's not what this means. What this verse means is, if we deny Jesus, if we are faithless, God remains faithful to his character, for God cannot deny himself. See, part of God's faithfulness to you could be the fact that if you reject his son and commit the unforgivable sin, that he will faithfully send you to hell, okay? And so when we say God is unjust to punish sinners, God is unjust to discipline his children, we have to ultimately come to the same conclusion that Paul is trying to bring us to in this second weaselly question in verses 3 through 4 is that it is not because God is unjust that he punishes us. It is only because God is faithful and just that he punishes us. And so we've seen two points now. We've seen that God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to the Jews. We've seen that God is faithful in his judgments, that part of God's faithfulness is disciplining sin. And now we're going to see our third and final point today, that God is even faithful when he pours out his wrath. Okay? God is even faithful when he pours out his wrath. Now listen, verses 5 through 8 are very hard to understand, okay? If you, when I read it, if you say, I have no idea what he just said, don't worry. We will take this slow. We will break this down. We will figure it out together. But don't, don't panic if I read this and you say, I have no clue what you just said, Pastor. So, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. So the first thing you need to understand as we begin to unpack this is that this is what I'm going to call a teenager argument. Okay? Now, if you don't know what a teenager argument is, a teenager argument is an argument that may logically be true or may even <clears throat> technically be true, but it's such a bad argument it doesn't even deserve a response. Let me give you an example of a teenager argument that I told my dad one time. My dad told me to mow the lawn. He told me he would pay me $10 to mow the lawn or something like that. And I said, Father, you pay someone $10 to cut my hair. The lawn is at least a thousand times bigger than my head. So if you want to be consistent 
and I deserve the wages that are due, then you owe me at least $10,000 to mow the lawn. Now, is that technically, maybe, logically consistent? Maybe. Does my dad owe me any answer to that other than go out and mow the lawn for free now? No, he doesn't, okay? And so in the same way, these people that Paul's interacting with are giving this, these teenager arguments that like, kind of, sort of, if I squint just right, makes sense. But Paul doesn't even deal with trying to explain it. He just says, your condemnation is deserved, which is the same way of saying, go to your room, okay? So that's what we're dealing with here. So verse 5, it says, if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? And so the logic of this is like, the worse we are, the better God looks, right? Like I heard an illustration that it is the, uh, it, you know, the, the diamond that is placed on the black mat. You place it on the black mat so the diamond, you can see how clear it is in the same way. The more sinful we are, the more better God looks, right? Okay. And Paul, Paul wants to clarify, and he says, I'm using a human argument. So, like, don't think that I'm talking as an apostle right now. I'm, I'm using a human, argue, human argument right now. Is it unrighteous for God to inflict wrath? So the more I sin, the more, more holy that God looks, and we all want God to look holy. So then why on earth is God punishing me for my sin if my sin is making God look holy? Okay. And so the first response that he gives is he says, absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? And so his first refutation to this is that, listen, you little Jewish weasel person, imaginary Jewish weaselly person who's talking to me right now, you have no problem with the idea that God's going to judge the Gentiles. You have no problem with the idea of believing that God is going to judge the wicked Jews, the Jews who are not as good as you. And so if you want God to judge the world, I have bad news for you. You are part of the world. And so if your first statement is, how is it fair for God to judge people? Well, you want everyone else to be judged. And so there is no problem then with saying, well, if you want everyone else to be judged, you fall under the category of everyone else, so you get to be judged as well. That's the closest Paul even gets to dealing with this interaction, okay? It's saying, obviously, God is going to judge the world, and you're part of the world, so buckle up, buddy. You're going to be judged too. But verse 7 and 8, but if by my lie... God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? So the same thing, the more I lie, the more I sin, the more God is glorified because he looks so much better, why am I still being judged? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do evil so that good may come, or as I've heard it said, let us sin so grace may abound. Paul doesn't even respond. He just says, their condemnation is deserved. I'm not even going to address this argument. These people deserve the judgment they're going to get. Okay? And so let's, let's break this down now that we understand kind of the back and forth. Paul is not refuting so much this specific bad logic as I think Paul's just refuting bad logic in general. See, there is a lot of people who think on the day of judgment they're going to be able to outdo God or best God in a battle of wills. You know, if you think about like the Princess Bride, they have to fight the giants, they have to fight the swordsmen, they have to out -cun cunning the guy with the poison and everything. Like, they think that on their cunningness, they will beat God. This person here thinks that when he stands before God, 
God, he is going to be able to logically prove that he doesn't need to be judged and God will let him into heaven, okay? And now we may think this is the exception to the rule, but as I've traveled this big blue marble that we call Earth and gone around it 36 times, I've seen interviews and I've seen clips that have really stuck with me of people who think they can outdo God. There's a British actor named Stephen Fry who's an atheist, and in an interview someone asked him one time, if it turns out God is real, what is the first thing you're going to say to him? And the first thing he said is I would go up to him and say, how dare you create a world where there is so much misery and suffering? It is evil, okay? Stephen Fry thinks that if God is real, he can emotionally outdo God by putting God in some kind of checkmate that this world is the problem and you created it, therefore I'm not a sinner, it's your fault for putting me in this world, Okay? Or Timothy McVeigh, I remember seeing an interview with him when I was in high school where he was being interviewed on what he would do if he woke up after he was uh, killed and uh, woke up in hell. And his response was he would do what his military training prepared him for. He would improvise, he would adapt, and he would overcome, okay? Now, Stephen Fry, Timothy McVeigh, this person here, they all have different bad arguments, but the one thing they have in common is a complete misunderstanding of who God is. Whether they think they can manipulate God and trick God through logic, emotion, or sheer force of will, every single one of these people thinks that when they stand before God, they are going to be able to play God in a proverbial game of chess, and they are going to put him in checkmate, and they are going to win. Now, Paul just says they're going to get what they deserve, right? Like, this doesn't even deserve an argument. This doesn't even deserve me unpacking it. They're just going to get what they deserve. Like, I don't know if you remember about a year ago, this video was going around the internet where Mike Tyson was on an airplane, and there was a guy behind Mike Tyson who was heckling him and messing with him and poking him and making fun of him. Well, what do you think Mike Tyson, Iron Mike, the guy who bit off of Vander Holyfield's ear, ear Iron Mike, what do you think he, he did? He got up and turned around and punched the guy a bunch. And like, okay, if you make fun of Mike Tyson enough on an airplane, your condemnation is deserved. Like, you're going to get what you deserve. In the same way, that's kind of what Paul is saying. Like, if you think that you can sit there and you can mock God and you can go to a holy God and say, hey, God, the more I sin, the better you look, so you shouldn't punish me for the more I sin because I'm really doing you a favor, buddy. Like, if you think that way, then Paul would just say, your condemnation is deserved. And so, as Christians, I guarantee you, every single one of us have had a passing thought where we sit there and we think, whoa, I can just, I can just like sin, and then God will forgive me. And like, he has to, he said he will. And so that's just, that's just the thing that I can do. Like, if I choose to sin, I know God will forgive me, right? I, I, I know I'm not the only person who's ever thought that, okay? I'm not saying I think it anymore. I'm just saying when I was a new believer, that was a thought that crossed my mind, is that I can sin and there's really not any kind of consequences because God will just forgive me if I sin. That's the exact same thing that this guy is saying. He's saying, let's sin so the more we sin, the more grace we can receive. So Christian, if you deal with the residue of that thought, if every now and then that idea comes to you where you think to yourself, if I sin, it's okay, God will just forgive me. 
I want to share with you three reasons to help you combat that. Three things as to why you might think that way. Reason number one is you don't understand what sin is, okay? Paul Washer says, we don't understand what sin is the same way a fish doesn't understand how wet he is. Like, we don't understand how bad our sin is. And all sin is sin against God. And all sin was sin that was paid for at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so when you say, oh, if I sin, God will just forgive me. That's the same thing as saying, Jesus has already taken 39 lashes for me. What's another lash? Jesus has already been pierced for my transgression. He's already been crushed for my sin. What's another piercing and what's another crushing? See, sin is an offense to God. Jesus paid for that sin. And so every time we think, I can just sin and God will forgive me, that's just like us saying, I can just take a hammer and nail and just drive that nail in a little deeper in Jesus' wrist. It's already in there. He, he's already on the cross. And it's a complete misunderstanding of what Jesus has done for us. And so our first problem is we don't understand what sin is. Sin is an offense against God. And sin is taking a holy and pure Jesus and saying, whip him again because he's already been whipped. Okay? The second problem we have as believers is we don't understand how holy God is. A lot of us have this understanding of God where he has really more in common with like the Coca-Cola Santa that you see around November and December on the commercials. You know, the guy with the little red nose and white beard who hangs out with the polar bears. Like we have a view of God kind of like our a jolly grandpa or something. We don't understand how holy God is. Uh, let me read four different encounters that people had with God in the Bible. And you tell me what is the common thread in every single one of these. Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah sees God and says, Woe is me, I am ruined, because I have a man of unclean lips. Revelation 1, 7, John sees Jesus, and he says, When I saw Jesus, I fell like a dead man at his feet. Ezekiel 1, 28, Ezekiel the prophet sees the wheels within wheels, and the appearance of the bright light was all around like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory, and when I saw it, I fell face down and heard a voice speaking. Acts 9-4, Paul's on the road to Damascus, and he sees Jesus, and it says, Paul fell to the ground and didn't eat or drink for three days. See, we don't understand God's holiness, but every single person in the Bible who meets God immediately understands God's holiness. Every single person who sees God falls at God's feet like a dead man, okay? And so when we say, I'll just, I'll just sin and then God will just forgive me, not only are we lashing Jesus more for our own benefit, but we are not understanding what an egregious offense it is to such a holy God we have. And then the third reason that we may think I can just sin so grace can abound is that we don't really appreciate what grace is. Like that, that may be a shocking statement because we love grace, we love grace so much. John Baker loves grace so much he asked her to marry him. Yeah? But not that type of grace, the other grace. We love the grace that God gives. But, uh, you know, we don't actually love grace as much as we think we do. We love not getting in trouble. Like a lot of us view grace the way we view um, a sample at Sam's Club. Like, Oh, wow, uh, Asian fusion chicken nugget on a Ritz cracker? I'll try that, sure, why not? Like, that's how we view grace. But you don't need that. But you just go like, yeah, okay, if it's there, I'll take it. But like, 
We need grace. We need grace like we see a bottle of water after walking two days through the desert, okay? Like that is how we need to view grace. We need to view grace as not something that we just take or leave it. It's a nice thing to have. But rather, we need grace like someone who is dying of thirst on a hot day in the desert and is given a bottle of cold water. And once you realize how sinful you are, and once you realize how holy God is, And once you realize that no matter how hard you try, you will still fail God, but God will freely give grace to you. Oh my goodness, how much you then say, if you will give me this grace, give me all of it. Give me an ocean of grace because I will take everything. Not because I want to manipulate you, not because I want to sin against you, but because I realize now how desperately I need this. Now compare and contrast that to the original argument of let's sin so grace may abound. That is a complete misunderstanding of what sin is, of how holy God is, and what grace is, okay? And like Paul says, their condemnation is deserved. And so if someone says God is unfaithful to punish sinners, God is unfaithful because the more we sin, the better he looks. You now can see that God is so faithful when he pours out his wrath. God is not unfaithful as he poured out his wrath. It is because God is faithful that he pours out his wrath because sin is an offense to God. And so as we conclude today, we have seen God's faithfulness as we deal with these little weaselly arguments. We've seen that God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to the Jewish nation. By them being born a Jew, they had greater access to the word of God. They had greater access to the proximity of God. They just had to act on it. We've seen that God is faithful as he judges people. That when the Jewish people reject Jesus and God punished them, that that is not because God is unfaithful, but rather because God sets before life and death, blessing and curses. For us today, if we sin against God and God disciplines us, that is not because he's unfaithful, that's because he is faithful. And then we've seen that God is even faithful through his wrath. That as we sit here, if there are any of us in this audience who think, I'm going to go through and I'm going to keep kicking the proverbial seat of Mike Tyson, and the more I kick the seat of Mike Tyson, the more patient he looks, so he should really be doing me a favor. When you get punched in the face, you get what you deserve, you know. And for us today, as we say, I'm going to keep sinning against God, I'm going to keep doing this because the more I do this, the more God will forgive me, so the more loving he'll look your condemnation is deserved as well. If you think that way, that is something you need to majorly repent of. But I want to remind you, not only is God faithful as he judges sin and condemns sin, but Christian in the room today, I want you to remind you as you leave that God is faithful with his mercy toward you as well. I don't want us to just be on a note of punishment and judgment. I want you to know God's faithfulness encompasses all of his attributes. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Christian in this room today, if you've sat there and you have had the thought of, I can just sin because God will forgive me, or you've had the thought of, you know, why is God punishing me? It's not fair. He must not love me or anything like that. I want you to know that that same God that's faithful to do those things to you is also faithful to forgive you if you come to him. And so as Stacy comes up to play, Christian in the audience, there are so many things that we sin against God for. There are so many things in which God is faithful to judge us and faithful to punish us. 
And there are so many times we shake our fist at his judgment and his punishment. And so, Christian, I want you to know that God is also faithful to forgive you if you come to him, that his mercies are new every morning. And so, Christian, take this time and begin asking the Holy Spirit to search your heart, to reveal sin that you need to confess. And if you are not a believer in this room, I want you to know that God is faithful to forgive you of the original sin of rejecting Jesus. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want you to know that the only thing that matters in life is answering the question that Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? God can forgive every other thing, but if we don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came and lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for us, who rose again, who offers us salvation, if we don't believe that, if we reject that, that is the one thing that God will not forgive. So if you are in this room today and you have not put your trust in Jesus, you have not gone to Jesus and asked him to forgive you, I want you to know that he is faithful and righteous and he will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you. But if you reject this, this same Jesus will be faithful to deny you in front of his father. This same Jesus will be faithful to pour out wrath on you. Like it says in Deuteronomy, we are setting before you life and death blessings and curses. Choose life so that you may live.